0: Hello, and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members, exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. And today we're going to be thinking about urban governance, specifically urban resilience, and how urban resilience is being rolled out as a policy solution for cities such as Jakarta and Samarang in Indonesia that are trying to adapt to the many shocks and stresses associated with climate change. Here to discuss these issues with me is our guest, Dr Sophie Weber, who's a lecturer in geography in the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. Sophie is a human geographer who conducts research about the political economies of climate change and international development assistance, mostly in Southeast Asia and the Pacific region. Sophie studies how climate change and development projects and policies circulate particular forms of expert knowledges and innovations in financial technologies and what the impacts of these projects are. Sophie, thank you for joining us. Hi, Natalie. Your work looks at urban resilience, which is part of this broader urban governance agenda that has emerged in the past few decades. What is urban governance all about? Can you talk us through the main concepts?
1: Yeah, I like to think about urban governance as attempts to manage, control, regulate the relationship between humans and the environment in cities. So that could be the environment through processes like climate change, but also the built environment, so our assets, infrastructures, and so on. So if we think about urban governance as a particular regime that manages these relations between humans and the natural and built environments, then there are different kind of paradigms or typologies of this. So we're talking about urban resilience, and that's one particular way of understanding how we manage that relationship between humans, the natural environment, and Our institutions and infrastructure. So, urban resilience tries to kind of map and manage these relations by thinking about our ability to respond to and manage um, shocks and stresses. And this is particularly taken off in the last few years or the last decade with the rollout of the 100 Resilient Cities program. Although there are some antecedents to this, Um, and they're really thinking about these shocks and stresses with respect to climate
0: change and rapid urbanisation. So, rapid growth in cities. You've mentioned the 100 Resilient Cities project. Can you talk us through that a little bit more? Is it run by the Rockefeller Foundation?
1: Yeah, so the 100 Resilient Cities program was run by the Rockefeller Foundation. It's now wrapped up. It's now finished. But it has some really important lingering effects, I think. And so this program, it was originally created to celebrate the Rockefeller Foundation's centenary. It's 100 years and it was kind of taking a gamble on cities as these really important vectors of managing climate change and growth, mostly through urbanisation. Um, and it rolled out through kind of four pillar strategy. The first one was building this network of 100 cities. So I was hoping that cities would be able to share knowledge about their shocks and stresses and how they would manage these. So there was the network. There was also a kind of strategic planning process where cities put together plans um, or analyses of what their resilience problems were and then strategies for how to manage that. They instituted a chief resilient officer. So this was someone who would sit in the city government in different kind of capacities and in different institutions. And then they also created these new relationships between cities and a whole series of private sector partners. So partly these were consulting firms that would help the cities do these assessments and build these plans, but also solutions providers. So anything from small NGOs to huge multinational um, urban service providers were contracted to work with cities, to try to come up with these innovative solutions to solve these urban resilience challenges. Was the program funded? What was the incentive for cities to participate in this? Yeah, so each city got around a million dollars. So it was 100 cities, 100 million dollars to celebrate 100 years of Rockefeller. Um, If you think about a million dollars and what that buys you over several years, that's not a lot. You know, if you're thinking about there's a resilience officer in Sydney, a million dollars over three to four years is, is not going to get you very much here. And that was one of the challenges. You know, a million dollars goes differently far in Sydney versus Jakarta or Semarang. Yeah, so there was funding attached to it, but there wasn't funding to achieve all of the goals in the, in the strategy. It was mostly a kind of governance process of setting up these strategies, identifying solutions, and then through the resilience officer and that process, kind of streamlining that into
0: ongoing city operations. So perhaps more about embedding resilience, urban resilience into these cities and yes. sort of seeding it. Yes. Okay. You mentioned um, one of the objectives of the program was to share information about responses to shocks and stresses. Can you give us some examples of what those shocks and stresses might be? So the ability
1: of the um, 100 Resilient Cities program to respond to the shocks and stresses really is dependent on the political power of the institution itself. And so, unsurprisingly to anyone who knows anything about Jakarta politics or Indonesian politics that power really changes over time. So the original 100 IC office in Jakarta was associated with Ahok. And then when he lost the gubernatorial election, the program continued, but obviously it had a lot less power because it was so, so centrally located with his politics. And then there's also a kind of, I think the reason that we're interested in this program in Jakarta was that there really is this political power and political strategy wrapped up in whether or not Jakarta was to become a 100 resilient city at all. Jakarta was one of the very last cities to become a 100 resilient city. And many people would say that you couldn't have a legitimate resilience program without incorporating Jakarta. And so it was perhaps much more the Rockefeller Foundation that were interested in working in Jakarta than the city was in working with them. It's not a lot of money. Jakarta doesn't need a million dollars to manage their flood problem. Like, that's not that useful for them. And there's also questions around what the Rockefeller Foundation is really willing to pay for to happen in the city. And so because flood management is such such a political issue in the city... That wasn't really on the agenda in terms of what they were wanting to address. So I think this is what is really interesting about studying urban resilience as an urban governance issue, is that it is wrapped up in these political institutions and infrastructures rather than necessary and necessarily an obvious solution to the crises that are occurring in the city.
0: Um, so the Rockefeller Foundation is obviously a philanthropic organisation, but you also mentioned the role of the private sector yeah. in this 100 Resilient Cities program. What was its role?
1: So that was different in different cities and that's actually a project that I'm working on at the moment to try to understand specifically what is being bought and sold in this program because the Rockefeller Foundation say that one of their key objectives is to marketize urban resilience, make it a project that can be bought and make it an idea or a solution that can be easily bought and sold on markets. But it's not really clear what that looks like because urban resilience is not a product. It's not an urban good or an urban service. So what that actually looks like in terms of the role for the private sector is really complicated. What actually ended up happening was that, I guess there's two key areas that the private sector are playing a central role. The first is in consulting. ARIP and ACOM both played a really big role in setting the agenda for urban resilience, using all of these memes of urban resilience, like the resilience wheel and so on. That was all created by consultants. And then rolling out that process through the assessment and strategic planning process that was wrapped up with consultants as well. I don't know that the Rockefeller Foundation would agree with this but one of our um, research informants said that the city of Jakarta had no, no ability to choose their own consulting partner and they really wanted to work with someone who was more familiar with the local context but they were kind of told they had to work with one of these big consultants So that was one area that the private sector played a big role. And then the other area is in terms of offering these solutions to urban resilience. Again, that looked really different in different cities. In the case in Semarang, it was not really the private sector. It was a small community group doing really interesting community mapping, community asset management, and community art projects. Um, In other cities, it's much more about big global conglomerates like Veolia and Suez and other these big water service providers rolling out new privatised water provision contracts. So there really is a huge range in terms of what the private sector are doing in these projects.
0: Yeah. And you described the global urban resilience complex as multi-centric. So you've mentioned we've got the philanthropic Mm organisations, private sector actors, um, public sector this idea of grassroots advocacy organisations um, and also interurban networks is another one that you mentioned. Yeah. So I, I think it's worth noting, of course, that many of these actors operate globally, particularly the multinationals, but their clients, as you call them, are in the in the global south. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can come back to the effect that this has had. But what I'd like to do now is to explore why you chose these two cities. Is it correct that Samarang was one of the first to be chosen? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So uh, you describe um, your research as what happens when global ideas, practices and imaginaries touch down in a specific place. Mm -hmm. So why did you choose Samarang and Jakarta? So I didn't choose
1: Samarang to work in. That was, you know, I was doing research in Jakarta and I was really interested in why these big urban resilience projects hadn't really eventuated there. Like to me, it was so logical particularly on the back of a lot of the multilateral development banks doing work on urban resilience issues in the city. Um, And so I was like, why has this not evolved along with this kind of complex, which does bring the World Bank and a whole series of other MDBs in relationship with philanthropists and interurban networks? um, Why was this not occurring in Jakarta? And so I was doing fieldwork there trying to understand issues around financing urban resilience and, and what the innovations in that were in Jakarta and then when I got there when I was doing you know digging around on the internet it became apparent that Jakarta was going to become a resilient city and through some collaborations with a kind of think tank who were involved in the process of putting the bid in to become a resilient city I started to be interested in how this unraveled and what what was going to be achieved through this program, what the, as I said, the kind of political and, and power dynamics were going to be and what this was actually going to be able to achieve in Jakarta. You know, it was a big gamble. It was a very publicized program, but it was interesting to me to understand what that program could buy you in such a complex space like Jakarta. So we were doing interviews with people who were involved in the bid to become a resilient city and then involved in its rollout Some of them had worked closely with the Semarang case. Um, And so it just became apparent that to understand a little bit more about what that process was going to look like, that would be a nice case study. Um, And it's so different to Jakarta in terms of how it rolled out and what it looked
0: like. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: A lot of the early cases of Involvement in the Resilient Cities program are cities that you wouldn't necessarily imagine being involved in a kind of big global interurban network. There are not these big global cities that often end up pasted on the front of the New York Times. The New York Times does a really good line on the shocks and stresses of climate change and rapid urbanization. And so Semarang is one of them, right? They do have obviously issues around flooding, much like Jakarta, but the way they responded to that is very different. Like in Jakarta, they originally worked with some small community organizations that had their roots in activism. Um, but actually, in that case in Jakarta, they were able to run with some pretty interesting arts oriented groups who were who made these community maps, which tried to really center. Centre informal communities, kampung communities that were experiencing the effects of of flooding and what they prioritised as their forms of resilience in response to that flooding. Very, very different to um, what was going on around 2015, 2016 in AHOC's vision of how to respond to flooding.
0: You said that the Rockefeller Foundation has wrapped up its program. Was that planned or did they just sort of give up? And what are the consequences of, of it concluding? Are, are cities like Jakarta and Semarang continuing with this vision to be an urban and resilient city?
1: When we finished our research in this project, nothing really had happened in Semarang. And so they had done this planning process, they'd come up with this strategic plan, they'd worked with these communities to establish that, and then there was no funding to implement any of the projects, so it ended. Um, And, you know, in Jakarta, the way that this project has actually ended up unfolding has been through one of the um, deputy governors. Deputy Governor for Spatial Planning has kind of taken control of the 100 Resilient City Process, and used it to kind of leverage the work that he's already doing anyway and connect the two together to keep it going. So that work is still going and the Rockefeller Foundation have kind of given the stamp to one of his big agendas. But so, yeah, the program ended. It did end very abruptly, Many of the cities hadn't finished their planning processes um, or implementation processes, and there was a lot of backlash from the city participants. Um, they lobbied the Rockefeller Foundation to continue to support them and they actually got a little bit of support to complete their works. There's a lot of speculation. Maybe it was a new president coming in and wanting to move their agenda in a different direction, some speculation about the political climate in the US and wanting to play a bigger role in thinking about resilience in that context, Some speculation that the program had been completely ineffective. Um, And then there are also questions around the financial agenda that they wanted to pursue. So much less um, kind of soft social and environmental impact and much more private sector investing in resilience solutions. And there is some, some part of the legacy of the 100 Resilient Cities program that is continuing to invest in what they talk about as urban resilience infrastructure and really trying to get the private sector to take a much more leading role in what that looks like.
0: Just on that issue of the private sector, and you mentioned earlier that there was a push to marketise or sort of capitalise urban resilience. And you do argue that because the global urban resilience complex is driven by philanthropic capitalist and neoliberal norms and aspirations, it therefore needs to be able to be subjected to critique along these lines as well. So with that in mind, what are your criticisms of this urban governance framework?
1: So there's some work I've been doing with some other colleagues around the World Bank and their urban resilience agenda. And so There's a lot of reasons why the World Bank would take this agenda on, including things like a total lack of relevance in determining what development looks like anymore. But they're essentially arguing that there's never going to be enough money to pay for urban resilience. Public money is never going to be good enough to pay for the trillions and trillions of dollars that we need to retrofit cities for a climate future. And so they say that we need to cede all of this to the private sector. There's trillions of dollars on private capital markets that are looking for sites of investment in a low interest, low return world. And so the role of the World Bank and other organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation is to create a new asset class essentially for this capital to invest in. And the World Bank thinks about this in Jakarta as well, creating infrastructure that is investable for private financiers. What assets become investable is decided purely based on returns, not on public amenity or public good. So the decisions about what resilience look like is left to capital markets rather than communities who are impacted by that infrastructure, communities that need infrastructure, or even governments. Um, So I think that's really problematic. This is all oriented around returns rather than what, what our kind of urban resilience good life would look like um, and, what, and what we collectively imagine
0: cities of the future to be. That's a great segue to my next question because you mentioned the cost of retrofitting cities. Yeah. Uh, what about building cities from the ground up? So it's this really interesting idea that pops up from time to time in Indonesian discourses that they're going to move the capital of Jakarta somewhere else. So the current plan is to move the capital to East Kalimantan. Yeah. Is it possible to build an urban resilient city from the ground up?
1: there are a lot of places that have tried this. There are all sorts of eco-cities in China. There's huge new city programs all over India. And I think a lot of the geographical research about this shows that they largely fail. Largely fail to achieve what we might think to be the objectives. But of course, they achieve all sorts of other things, right? I don't know that anyone could, you know, hand on heart say that they're moving Jakarta because of the flooding issue, right? Like, this is all sorts of other political and economic dynamics determining that move whether or not it goes ahead who knows but I think that it is entirely possible to build a resilient city from the ground up sure but whether that actually occurs in practice is a whole other question and history suggests no the history
0: of master planning cities in general suggests no your research is conducted in the wild Can we think of cities as wild, like this sort of urban jungle idea? Or are these spaces that are able to be managed and regulated?
1: Yeah, so there's a really interesting question about what our cities are. And I think, you know, I I kind of do research in in what we think of as an urban political ecology general arena. And part of the paradigm of urban political ecology is that cities are not unnatural. Like cities are no more unnatural than your your forest or your beach or whatever. Um, Cities are made of natural products and human labor, but so also are national parks. So I think that to the extent that anything is wild, then cities have to be wild too. Um, To the extent that anything in our city could be governed by capitalist ideas about governing space, I think cities are just the same as wild places in that. They're always going to escape governance for a whole series of reasons. Humans aren't rational actors, nature isn't a rational actor. And so it will always escape our attempts at governing.
0: I think that's a great geographer's response to that question (laughs) Um, that makes us rethink parks, for example, and, you know, national parks and what we perceive to be natural spaces. I'd like to wrap up by asking you uh, about the other aspects of this urban governance agenda. So we've talked a lot about urban resilience, but there are also a couple of other concepts that make up this urban governance agenda, including, of course, urban sustainability and smart cities, What's the difference between urban resilience and a smart city?
1: So actually they're really tightly aligned
0: I think. They're different they're different
1: kind of imaginaries for urban governance and and different actors will latch onto one or the other at different points and for different reasons. So you know, one of my interviewees actually in the paper that I wrote about Jakarta and the 100 Resilient Cities program talks about like smart cities, sustainable cities, resilient cities. He also talks about Pokemon cities. It's like whatever, all these acronyms are all the same. It doesn't matter. Um, And so I think there's part of that that is true. Like these are slogans that people reinterpret on the ground and come to mean all sorts of things depending on that context. And the political and economic relations in which it is embedded, ideas, ideologies, and so on. But they are also a different set of practices, even if they are aligned. And they they do intersect really, really nicely. Smart cities, though, are also about technology much more than they are about things like climate change um, or urban development. So smart cities promise efficiency in urban governance, using technologies to achieve all sorts of efficiencies whether um, in Jakarta a really good example is using sensors at all sorts of points around the city to judge what the urban flooding impacts are going to be so you can you can see the levels of the reservoirs all over the city and the floodgates and whatever and you can respond in real time in order to reduce the impacts of flooding or at least sound the alarm about flooding across the city and there's a different kind of ways that this can be embedded in flooding again in Jakarta has been Addressed through through citizens through um, platforms like Twitter, and that is also part of a kind of smart city agenda. It just operates in a different kind of way. It's more private sector than than the state. Yeah, so I've been doing a little bit of research through Siac about the smart city in Jakarta, and. One of the things that we're, that I'm finding that I find really interesting about this project in Jakarta is that the ideas about smart cities and even a lot of research, critical research about smart cities, really emphasize the speed of smart cities. So they're all about dealing with really rapid population growth and really rapid and unexpected climate change. They're all about responding in real time to different crises around the city. And it's all about efficiency, so getting buses to move around cities really effectively and allocating resources to empty your garbage bins effectively and efficiently and so on. So it's all about this speed and efficiency in the city. But actually, what we're finding is that the smart city program in Jakarta, which is called Jakarta Smart City, this is the urban governance framework, uses smart technologies in ways that I think slow down action so they're actually much more what I think of as these governing strategies of delay um, and projection into the future. So using these technologies to project action into the future, to shift action into someone else's domain, to kind of make hypothetical scenarios in which they might act in the future but doesn't really eventuate in any of those speed and efficiencies in terms of urban governance
0: in the now. I can't wait to hear more about that future research. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, But thank you so much for talking to us about urban resilience today and sharing your research in Indonesia. Thanks for having me, Natalie. You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.